Isaiah chapter 3 as we continue our study through the Old Testament, currently in the book of Isaiah. This evening in Isaiah chapter 23, God's going to announce the judgment against the city of Tyre. Now in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 13, beginning with chapter 13 up to this chapter 23, Isaiah tells us God's plan. Not only for Judah, but also for ten Gentile nations. And it's like Isaiah is kind of unrolling the scroll of prophecy here to read it to us here. Isaiah called these prophetic announcements burdens several times. And, and, And the Hebrew word means to lift up, to lift up. These burdens or messages... They were weighing heavy on Isaiah's heart and mind. And he was carrying this heavy load in his heart because of the serious nature of these messages that God is giving him. He was telling them, Isaiah was telling them about the coming judgments of God that involved the destruction of cities and the death of thousands of people. And so it's no wonder that, that I, Isaiah felt burdened, that he weighed Uh, was felt weighed down and that he was heavy in his heart here in chapter 23 we now come to the last or the 11th judgment against the nations and these judgments were brought against the nations around israel and each one of these great nations represents some principle philosophy or system that god must judge So we're going to take a look at these 11 nations for a minute before we dive into the chapter. And we're going to see what these 11 nations represent. The first was Babylon. Babylon represents false religions and idolatry. Idolatry in our land is covetousness. In our land, it's covetousness, which is the irresistible desire to have more stuff. To give in to getting the material things of the world. Second, Philistia. Philistia represents true religion, but has become apostate. And today you find the same thing has happened in a lot of churches. They go through rituals. They even repeat the apostles', uh, the apostles doctrine in the Lord's Prayer. And from all outward appearances, they seem to be resting upon the Bible, the Word of God. But in reality, they deny everything that's in it. They're apostate, which means they're standing away from what they once believed. And then Moab, God's going to bring judgment against Moab. Moab represents formal religion, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And many today could be identified with one of these three, Babylon, Philistia, or Moab. Some are giving their lives to the accumulation of material things. And our eyes are filled with the things that we want. We're covetous. Some have been brought up in Bible-believing churches but have turned away from their teachings. Others go to church and they follow a system and ceremonies and rituals. They, end up, they, they, they go out feeling good and those rituals might be beautiful, but they're dead. And like Simon the Magician that we studied about last Sunday, by all outward appearances, Simon the Magician seemed to be a true believer because it says that he believed in Jesus and he was obedient in baptism And that he continued with Philip, but he didn't have a faith that saved. Fourth was Damascus. Damascus represents compromise. That's the position that a lot of churches, even fundamental churches, are in today. Then Ethiopia. 
Ethiopia represents missions, and we'll see that in our, in our message uh, this coming Sunday. Because the Ethiopian eunuch, remember uh, that, that Philip went and ministered the gospel to him. But Ethiopia represents missions. How we need to be involved in getting the word of God out. Egypt represents the world. Israel was told to stay out of Egypt. That's where Abraham got into trouble. And we're admonished to love not the world or the things in it. And many in the church are having trouble with the world today. Seventh is Persia. Represents luxury. A lot of us, hey, a lot of us love luxury in our prosperous society. Eighth is Edom. Edom represents the flesh. Many people serve the flesh today. Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the, through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor, de- nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 1 through 8. Then Arabia. Arabia re- represents war. There are two groups of people in today's society, the hawks and the doves. Both are of the world. The only difference between them is that the peace group tells us that they are for peace, but they're willing to fight for it. Number 10 is the Valley of Vision, or Jerusalem. This Valley of Vision, it represents politics. And some think that in politics, we're going to find the solutions to the problems of the world. And how long has that been going? We haven't found the solutions to the world yet. And we're not going to in politics and, verse, and number, uh, number 11 tonight is the city of Tyre. Tyre represents commercialism. That is big business, which is safe to say uh, is, is the great sin of America today, believing that money is the answer to all of our problems. When a problem comes up, what does government do? Votes for a little more money, but it's not the answer. And the people who are supposed to get it, they usually don't. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ who has any love for the poor and and really who knows how to help them best. And as God's last judgment here in chapter 23, we're going to look at the judgment of the city of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were the two great cities of the Phoenicians. Sidon was the mother city and she was soon surpassed by her proud and rich daughter Tyre. Tyre was one of the most famous cities of the ancient world. And Tyre was a major trading center uh, with a large seaport. Tyre was very wealthy and it was very evil as well. Tyre was rebuked by Jeremiah, by Ezekiel, by Joel, by Amos and Zechariah. So this is another warning against political partnerships with unpredictable neighbors. Beginning with verses 1 through 9 now in chapter 23... Verses 1 through 9 show us that God is responsible for Tyre's destruction. Let's look at verse 1 now of chapter 23. And Isaiah says, The burden against Tyre, wail you ships of Tarshish. 
for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. So the picture here in verse 1 is of ships that are returning home to Tyre from Tarshish, which was a community that was established in the area of Spain by the people of Tyre, where there's a gathering of Phoenicians. They get the word that Tyre has been destroyed. And as they, uh, as they sail closer to the city of, Ty- uh, of Tyre, they see the smoke rising up from the city. Then they see that the city has been leveled to the ground and the harbor is blocked. It will no longer be a great commercial center. There's no port there anymore. There's no haven uh, there anymore for the ships to enter the city. There are no shops to sell their goods in. There are no warehouses to store them in. There are no inns to lodge at, as well as no private houses for the residents to dwell in. It's all being destroyed by the enemy. And again, verses 1 through 9 show that God is the one who brought the destruction. The devastation of Tyre is described as so complete that notice verse 1 says, there's not even one house left in it. Verse 2. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled. Sidon, or it's spelled with a Z, Zidon, was about three miles up the coast from Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were, two, were the two major cities of the Phoenicians. The prominent sea merchants of Sidon, they made Tyre the great city that it was. And it's interesting that the prophecy about the destruction of Tyre was literally fulfilled. You go there today and Tyre no longer exists. It used to be a, a bustling city, a famous city, a wealthy city. When you go there now, all you see is fishnets spread across the rocks. The, liter- the, 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 the prophecy was literally fulfilled in the destruction of Tyre. But destruction wasn't predicted for, for Sidon. And Sidon to this day continues as a city. Look at verse 3 now. And on great waters, the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river, which he's speaking of the Nile River, is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. Shihor means dark or turbid, and it refers to the upper Nile River where the silt that flooded Egypt made it fertile. Now, the wealth of Egypt had flowed through the port of Tyre, and now no more. It's ended, and there's going to be an economical depression. Verse 4. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children. Neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. So this speaks of the destroying, the destruction of the city. There will be no more children, no more young men, no virgins. In other words, no more marrying and so on. Verse 5. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. So why would Egypt be so sad? Because Tyre fell. Because you see, Egypt depended upon Tyre's shipping expertise to promote and to carry their products around the world. Egypt would lose an important trading partner with the fall of Tyre. So the destruction of Tyre ruined Egypt's business in that day. Verse 6. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. The fall of Tyre caused worldwide sadness, even to a community that was way over on the southern uh, coast of Spain. Some of the inhabitants of Tyre escaped in ships to Tarshish when Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city. Verse 7, Isaiah says, Is this your joyous city? 
whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her afar off to dwell. He say, Isaiah saying, is this silent ruin all that's left of your once joyous city? He said, what a long history you had. Think of all the colonists that you sent to distant places. Any great commercial city is a city that's also a fun place to go to. Because there will be many things in that city that are pleasing to the flesh. And the first thing that I can think of is Las Vegas. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a fun city to go to. They have everything that, that your flesh could desire there. It's pleasing to the flesh. And now the people of Tyre are advised to run away. To go away as far as they can from that place. Because this city, uh, before all of this calamity, all right, it was a joyous city. But now that joy has come to an end. Verse 8, Isaiah said, Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth? The crowning city means the giver of crowns. It was the city that gave crowns to the rulers of her colonies and whose traders were the honorable men and they were the princes of the earth. Verse 9, The Lord of hosts has purposed it. To bring to dishonor the pride of all glory. To bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Notice the first part of verse 9. It says, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of God's armies, is the one who has purposed this. In other words, it was the Lord of hosts, the Lord of God's armies, who had purposed, who had determined the destruction of Tyre. And you know what? God doesn't apologize for planning the destruction, for arranging this destruction, and carrying out the destruction of Tyre. God's plan is to desecrate, to defile, and to destroy the temples where the heathen would take so much pride. And God was going to bring into contempt all that the earth so hopelessly honors. Tyre's pride and the city's boasting is going to be taken away. So that she will be humble. She's going to be humbled by God. And she's going to lose all the glory that she once had. Isaiah implies here that her honor would be totally removed. And there would be nothing left. And I think of God that w- that would that, that's done this to all of these cities. You know, and I think of our own nation, our own land. That it's, it's not any different today. It, it's, it's going in the same direction, if not already there. And you know what? God, in order to be just, he's, he's to bring judgment as well to the United States of America. Unless we repent of our sins. And we fall on our knees. And we ask for God's forgiveness. And he said he'll restore our land. God would destroy Tyre because God hated the pride of the people. And understand, God hates pride. And we've, we've seen this several times in this scripture. God hates pride. Because pride is what separates people from God. And God will not put up with pride. And we have to look at our own lives. And we have to remember that all true accomplishment and all good that we do is not because we're good. It comes from the Creator. Whatever is good in me, whatever good I do, that's Jesus. Whatever is bad, that's me. Jesus is the only one that's good. We have no reason for any pride in ourselves. 
And God's word tells us that in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, it says, the Solomon said, these, God said, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The top of the list of those seven things was pride. He said, a proud look. One thing that's abominable to God, one thing that is so loathsome to God is the pride of man. God hates that. He, he hates that people are lifted up with pride. And God has made it a point. God has set himself against the proud. James said in chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. If anybody's going to lift me up, I want it to be God. Not myself, not man, but God. God says he'll bring down the proud, and God knows how to humble the proud. He knows how to bring down the proud. All you have to do is look at King Nebuchadnezzar. When he went out on the top of his palace and he looked over and said, look at my king, look at everything that I've done. And God said, okay. And he humbled him for seven years. He made him like a wild beast until he recognized that God was, was great and God was gracious and merciful. God knows. That he, God says he'll bring down the proud, the proud because of the pride of these people and because they were trusting in their own strength. And in their own wisdom and leaning upon their own understanding and trusting in their own power, the Lord allowed them to be brought down. Pride is a dangerous thing for any individual or a nation. It's a dangerous thing for a nation. And because of that pride, God will bring them into contempt. Now, in verses 10 through 14, we see man's responsibility for this judgment. Now, God was the one who, who, who designed and arranged the judgment in verses 1 through 9. But man is responsible for this judgment that God brought. God didn't bring this judgment just because he, he wanted to or that, you know, he just felt mean that day. But it was because of man. Beginning with verse 10, let's see what it says. Then it says, overflow through your land like the river. Speaking of the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. The river again that's mentioned here is the Nile River. And as the Nile flowed freely, overflowed her banks, the colony of Tarshish is now free to do as she pleases since Tyre has fallen and Tyre is no longer able to control her. It says here, there is no more strength there in verse 10 to restrain since Tyre has been destroyed. In other words, it says, come on over all you people from Tarshish. Sweep over the land like the flooding Nile because, the, because Tyre is defenseless. Verse 11. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. Here, Isaiah announced the judgment of Tyre. Uh, I'm sorry, he announced the judgment of Tyre in verse 1. But now here, he starts to give us several details about that devastation, including how it it would be carried out. Isaiah mentions here the sea again. And up to now, Isaiah has directed his threats against the powers of the land. 
He's speaking directly to those in power in the land. Now he's, think, now he's thinking of a power that depended upon the sea. And in mentioning the sea, he's talking about it as the source of Tyre's livelihood. And how much of it she ruled. But you see, they seem to forget that the sea was controlled by the hand of God. Just as everything is controlled by the hand of God. The stars, the moon, the sun, the weather. And we see all these calamities with the weather all over the place. Climate, uh, uh, global climate problems. You know, global warming. Climate, you know, I believe it is, but hey, God's behind it. And what was it, what did they say? You had to say red code? They called it red code. The Bible said that these things were going to happen in the last days. There would be strange weather and strange demonstrations in the skies. But see, the world doesn't see it that way. It shouldn't be surprising to us. Global warming, climate change. Yeah, God's in charge of the climate. And he's bringing the change. The fires all over the place. The biggest one in California's history is almost half a million acres. You don't think God's in charge? The pandemic? Our government and the direction that it's going? It's the hand of God. Just like he's in charge of the sea. And the stars, when they rise, when they set, when they move, no rain, we're in drought. It's amazing that we can look and say, oh, you know, we, we got to go through all these things. We got to quit doing this and quit. You know, we got we to gotta look at the, the, our sin and to look to God. You know, he's allowing it. He said these things were going to come to pass. And when you see them come to pass, know that I'm at the door. I mean, I never thought I'd see these things in my time. But here they are. So he, again, it, it, now he's thinking of a power that depended upon the sea in verse 11. In mentioning the sea, he's talking about it as the source of Tyre's livelihood. And how much of it she ruled. But again, they seem to forget that the sea was controlled by the hand of God. It's, it's all in his hand. Tyre had learned, they ha- or they had to learn, that the God of Israel has power over the sea. And that the sea will feel the pushing power of God's outstretched hand. God has stretched out his hand because the time has come when he now wants to destroy this proud city. Talking about Tyre, but you, look, you listen to what he's saying. And you could think of the United States of America. Verse 12. And he said, you will rejoice no more. O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. What's suggested in verse 4 here, Tyre is the daughter of Sidon. Sidon was the older city, and rich merchants from there had founded Tyre, and they had given her celebrity status. They had given her her prominence. The joy of prosperity was going to disappear, and both Tyre and Sidon would suffer for it. And by running away, 
meant, meant here by crossing over to Cyprus, there in verse 12, that some people probably thought they might get away from all of the suffering and they might make a new start. And they were going to be disappointed in this too. Why? Because God was responsible for what happened to them. Even though he used human instruments to carry out his judgments. Verse 13. Behold the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not. Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Isaiah says, look at the land of Babylon now. The people of the land are gone. And the Assyrians have just let the wild animals of the desert take it over. They've built siege towers against its walls. They've torn down its palaces. And they've turned Babylon into a pile of dirt and rocks. And Isaiah tells us here that the Assyrians are the ones who destroyed Babylon. They were just an instrument in God's hands. Tyre will be like Babylon. It's going to be just a pile of ruins and no one living there. The towers mentioned in verse 13 are siege towers. They were built by the Assyrians against Babylon. The palaces, the palaces mentioned here in verse 13 were torn down and destroyed by the Assyrians as they were cut down to nothing. And then this verse ends with the rebuking exhortation. Notice in verse 14. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Wail. Cry out, you ships of Tarshish, because your harbor is destroyed. Cry out loud with pain, because your stronghold has been broken down. Your place of safety is destroyed. And then in verses 15 through 18, as he finishes the chapter, verses 15 or 18 there's a partial and complete recovery of Tyre. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years according to the days of one king. And at, at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to hire, she will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. Notice it says again, being with verse 15, it says, Now it shall come to pass in that day Tyre will be forgotten 70 years. Now 70 years here doesn't mean it's a literal 70 years. 70 years is often used in the Bible as an undetermined type of number. It's a figurative kind of number that just speaks of an indefinite number. In other words, he said for 70 years, it can mean, you know, you know, for so many number of years, not literally 70. You know, it's like the time when Peter, remember when, when he, was, uh, he was talking about forgiveness with Jesus? It's like the time Peter was feeling, you know, I think, pretty spiritual. 
like he was growing in grace, and he was getting the message of forgiveness that Jesus was teaching when Jesus was teaching on forgiveness. Peter was starting to understand just how important it is to have a forgiving spirit. And Peter probably thinking that he was maybe really being spiritual and that he may have even impressed Jesus and his fellow disciples. He said to the Lord, how often shall shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And I'll bet you Peter thought, oh man, I'm really being gracious if I forgive somebody seven times for, for repeating, for committing the same sin against me. And he probably thought for sure it would impress the other guys, the other disciples. Peter probably really thought that he could actually forgive somebody seven times for the same offense. And the other disciples are thinking, man, Peter's really growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And we are exhorted to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. 2 Peter 3.18 And then the Lord turned to Peter and said, I do not say to you up to seven times, Peter, but to se- up to 70. Again, an uncertain number. Up to 70 times seven in Matthew 18.22. You know, it's kind of like, you know, my, Kathy will ask me, hey, hey, you know, can you do this? I go, Psh. I've done it a million times. She goes, really? A million times? You know what I mean. You know, it's, it's that, use it. Oh, I, I know it. I, you know, I can do it. But, you know, we'll use that. We'll throw that number a million times. And, and obviously, it's not really a million times. But it's the same kind. Of, it's a figurative number. And so, again, Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70. 70, or 70 times seven. Again, Four hundred nine. Jesus wasn't saying that four hundred ninety times was the was the magic number, or was the spiritual number. And then you know, after four hundred ninety times, Peter, you can you can let the guy have it if you know if he if he sins against you again. But again, what the Lord was saying here is that forgiveness isn't about mathematics. Forgiveness is to be unlimited, and thank God it is, because think of how many times Jesus has had to forgive us. It's a matter of spirit. We read in Scripture, Paul said, in the, it's called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love suffers long. In other words, it's patient. And Paul said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here's the key, love never fails. Love is forgiving. It's unlimited forgiveness. And when it says love never fails, it, it, love does not look at failure as final. And I've heard so many people say, you know what, He's, he or she, they've done this so many times. Do I, you know, isn't there a time when I just quit forget? No. That's the point Jesus was making. Love never fails. It continues to love. It continues to forgive as often as needed. And we need to remember, just as often as I need to be forgiven for my sins, and and though I may repeat them several times, and I come to Jesus in true and meaningful, heartfelt repentance, he will forgive me. He will forgive me. So Jesus was here, we're to be having a forgiving spirit. But the word again, the, the number 70 is often used in the scriptures as an uncertain period of time. 
even before their final destruction, speaking of Tyre, now getting back to Tyre and Sidon, even before their final destruction, Tyre and Sidon wouldn't be involved in business for, an un, for, for 70 years, it says. Again, for an uncertain amount of time. History tells us that the, that the Assyrians restricted uh, Phoenician trade from 700 to 630 B.C., But when Assyria began to weaken in power, Tyre and Sidon started up their businesses again. Isaiah compared the revived city of Tyre to an old prostitute in verses 16 uh, through 17. Notice what he said in 16 and 17. He says, Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. In other words, Again, Isaiah was comparing this, the revived city of Tyre to an old prostitute who had to sing lovely songs in order to get attention. And it seems that the shipping business wouldn't be as easy or as profitable for Tyre as it used to be. And then in verse 18, Isaiah is looking ahead to the Messianic kingdom when the wealth of Tyre wouldn't be stockpiled. Zechariah 9 says, 9.3 says, but in the end, <coughs> excuse me, in the end, Her profits will be given to the Lord. Her wealth won't be stored up, but will provide good food and fine clothing for the Lord's priests. Excuse me. But but again, it would be given to the Lord as a holy offering. In closing, our study through chapter 13 through 23 Again, the prophecies against these idolatrous nations, these nations who have sinned against God and turned away from God, or never even turned to Him. These chapters, again, 13 to 20, has taught us some important lessons. First, that God is in control of the nations of the world. In spite of the chaos that we see right now, the craziness of our government, the socialistic Things that are taking place in our government. God is in control. God is in control of the nations of the world and the affairs of men. God can do whatever he wants to do with them. Secondly, God especially hates the sin of pride. And when nations turn from the living God to trust in their wealth, to trust in their weapons, and to trust in their leaders, God has to show them, I am in control. He has to show them, I am the only sure refuge. The third lesson that we learn from these chapters, God judges the nations for the way they treat each other. Judah was the only nation mentioned that had God's word, had God's law. And yet God had held the other ten nations, Gentile nations, accountable for what they did. Paul said in Romans 2.12, For as many as have sinned in the law, notice, will be judged by the law. Think about the light that we have in this country through the Word of God. Through the teaching of the Word of God. Through the churches that teach the gospel of Jesus Christ through the evangelists, through the missionaries that have preached the word to the world. For many, for as many have sinned in the law, will be judged by the law. And lastly, God always gives a word of promise and hope to his people. 
I love that. Before he ever brought judgment, he would bring the word. He would give them an opportunity to, to, to turn away from their sins and to repent and to confess their sins and turn to God. But if they didn't, then he would bring judgment. God always gives a word of promise and hope to his people. Babylon will fall. I'm sorry, Babylon will fall. But God will care for Judah. Moab will not accept uh, refuge from Jerusalem, but one day, one day, God's going to establish the, the Messiah's throne there. Assyria and Egypt, they may be sworn enemies of the Jews, but one day the three nations are going to glorify God together. Israel, Moab, and I'm sorry, Assyria and Egypt. Together one day, they're going to glorify God together. So it doesn't matter, and we we got to keep this in mind. It doesn't matter how scary the national or international situation may become. Things are going to probably get worse before they get better. But no matter how scary things get in our nation or internationally, God's children, we can have peace because we know the Almighty God is on the throne. The, may, the nations may rage... They may plan against God. They may try, they're trying to plan against God. They're raging against God today. They're trying to overthrow God today. But Psalm 2, 4 says, He who sits, on the heavens shall laugh, who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God is going to have the last laugh. And when the Lord Jesus of heaven and earth is your Father, and you gladly, joyfully follow His steps, you don't have anything to fear. Psalm 91 says, man, when, when, when God is your refuge and, and you, you, you find refuge under his wings, he says, though thousands fall around you, you will not be harmed. Though, though, though the plague and the pestilence is all around you, it shall not come to your home. As long as he's our refuge, as long as we're walking in him, with him, as long as we're abiding in him and him in us, we have nothing to fear. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for, your, again, your abundant grace, your enduring mercy, and your sacrificial love, God. And Father, we... Our only hope is in you. You are our refuge, our fortress. You're our strong tower. You're our mighty God. You're our city of refuge, Father. Our shield, our sword, our buckler. You're our protection. And Father, we pray that God, that we wouldn't be, Lord, we wouldn't be Lord, you know the word I'm looking for. Lord, that we wouldn't be pressed down. That we wouldn't be bummed out, God, by looking around at the things that are going on. But that we would look up and that we would see you comfortably seated on the throne, knowing 
that that's your place. And nobody is like you. There's none like you. There's none that can compare to you. Satan isn't even, Satan's not your equal. You're almighty. You're above all things. You're above all gods. And we thank you for that, Lord. You're our only hope in these days, Lord, these last days. So, Father, may we fix our eyes upon you. And and if there's anyone that is here, if there's anyone that might be watching that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. To accept him while you still can, while he's still near. And you do it by, again, just coming to him and and inviting him to your life. And if you want to do that right now, I'm going to lead you in in the sinner's prayer. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Baptize me in your Spirit. And help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer and you need a Bible,